Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham, Episode 13, The Profile of a Fool According to Proverbs. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. It's a serial podcast, meaning that it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Just so you know, reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things. And I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. Well, welcome to episode 13, The Profile of a Fool According to Proverbs. Today, I must admit, is something of an experimental episode because I have a list of Bible passages to talk about and I have almost no notes about them. Uh, so I will be winging it today, and uh, this is, like I say, experimental. We want to see how this goes. I'd like to bring to your mind that saying about friends don't let friends drive drunk. Well, if you are my friend and you think that today's episode does not go across very well because I'm off the script, I hope you will let me know that and not let me do this again. So uh, we'll see if this is valuable to people, and if not, we'll learn from it. Um, it is, of course, faster than writing a script. It is also a bit um, uh, lazier in a sense, or at least uh, less likely to be scholarly uh, and thorough. But uh, the advantage of it, other than being easier to do and more likely to get done right now rather than later, is that uh, we can just sit down and talk as if we were having coffee together. And that kind of conversational tone, I do think, would be very nice if I can pull it off well and not be too disorganized. So what I have in mind to do today, I think there are somewhere between 20 and 30 passages in the Proverbs that use the word fool or foolish and so forth. And I wanted to talk about those today uh, because... I am so excited to get back after our lengthy discussion of the COVID-19 mask issue to get back on track with the overall uh, trajectory of these discussions being about, uh, so far, about what it means to have been created in God's image and likeness and how uh, God had in mind for us to be as people. Well, obviously, God as the creator uh, assumes the latitude to uh, take issue with how we behave as the creatures, or the creatures, as I said in one earlier episode and didn't edit that out. Uh, he, uh, it is his business how we behave, how we carry on our lives. It is uh, his concern, and obviously him being the creator, assuming that we're right about that, and I think we are, uh, obviously, obviously, but assuming that we're right about that, then he has every right to be concerned with how we live our lives, these lives that he gave us here in this real world that he made and in which he put us. 
This is me punching in an afterthought as I'm editing this episode to get ready to publish it. I forgot to mention that all of the scriptures used in the discussion will be listed on our website at uh, rethinkingthebible.com for your convenience, so that if you are in a position to go to the website uh, while you listen, uh, you would be able to see the scriptures there written out. It may help you to focus better. Maybe you don't need it, but I just wanted to be sure that you know about that. So it would be under episode 13 at rethinkingthebible.com. And now back to the discussion. We made much discussion uh, in early episodes about Proverbs 7, 9, where Solomon says, uh, This only I have found. God created man upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. I think he's saying that God had this certain idea in mind for what man would be like, but they, uh, and I think he's speaking generally here, have gone off in many directions, doing many other things other than uh, living in that image. And we've discussed that at length, and that will continue to be a topic of our discussion. And so today, when uh, Solomon talks about the fool, we have to wonder, well, is this just Solomon? Or is this something God had him write? Or is this something that God... um, would have agreed with? Is this something God put on Solomon's uh, mind to say? These are the questions, of course, of the inspiration of Scripture and how exactly that works. And I'll tell you um, for the record that the jury is still out on exactly what it means that these Scriptures are inspired. The easiest position to take, of course, is that, oh, God determined every single word that the author wrote and put them exactly as he wanted them to be. Uh, But there are issues that make that difficult to maintain. If that's your model, it's hard to uh, be consistent with that. There are certainly cases in the Bible where it doesn't seem that the author uh, was using the exact words given by God or even that that's what it was about. It may be well instead that the authors were prepared by God and were set free to speak on their own volition uh, about things that God had trained them about, so they really knew what they were talking about, and they said it in their own words and did not write it down in the fashion that God um, uh, directly uh, dictated to them. Well, that's a huge field of study. Obviously, it's very controversial. It's very troubling to some people, not so troubling to others. And uh, we'll constantly be dealing with that along the way as we go. But uh, we can wonder, well, when Solomon wrote this, did God tell him to? Or would God have checked off on this verse as, oh, yeah, absolutely, Solomon, that's exactly right. Well, I think uh, probably so that God would have agreed with this. Uh, Solomon was a prophet, and we can uh, get into that someday if we feel like that's worth the time to do. But I believe that he was writing generally under the understanding of God, at least in the things he wrote about. And, of course, it's a fascinating topic. This is the guy who went off. um, He was led astray by... the the many, many foreign wives that he married 
which is itself a fascinating conversation. How did this even happen? How did God let this happen? And uh, perhaps God let it happen to Solomon to show us that, well, first of all, perhaps he let it happen because Solomon himself went off in that direction. God let him go just as he lets us all sin when we want to sin. Uh, I don't know that God generally prohibits people or, or makes it impossible for them to sin. Uh, anyway, Solomon uh, wrote these things, and then eventually he broke faith with God in a big way. And uh, what to make of that is uh, perhaps difficult for us, too. So, um, so as we talk through these things today, uh, understand that I'm not the guy who thinks he knows everything and I've got it all figured out. Uh, this, for me, is quite an extended study in working a puzzle and trying to look for patterns and themes, things that seem consistent throughout the scriptures, and uh, when something steps out um, or uh, stands out, rather, as unusual or surprising, that's often when we're going to learn something, that we thought such and such was the case, but here this passage tells us something that doesn't really fit with that. Uh, so... Uh, then we have a chance to learn something new. And I find that very exciting, while other people may find it quite troubling, actually. <laughs> it upsets the apple cart. I suppose my apple cart is used to being upset. So uh, I think that's a good thing. Anyway, I don't think we'll find a whole lot that's controversial today as far as uh, matters of doctrine go or you know church structure or um, things like this. But what we will talk about today will be controversial in one sense, and that is this. It is very easy to spot foolish behavior sometimes when other people do it. It is more difficult to spot it when we ourselves are doing it. And trust me, we are ourselves doing it. Everyone does foolish things, has foolish thoughts. Everyone has beliefs that aren't fully vetted things that we'll be embarrassed about once we finally discover, oops, I was wrong about that. And I discovered in 2012 or so when I started uh, studying cognitive science about how we think, uh, I came up with what I call Pelham's Law of Cognitive Error, and it goes something like this. I am most likely wrong about many things. And so that's my big uh, discovery in this world. That's my claim to fame. Oh, yeah. He's the guy who discovered <laughs> that he's probably wrong about a lot of things. Uh, however, uh, that put me in a very strong position. And realizing this, I didn't have to defend myself anymore. I didn't have to protect my beliefs like, oh, that's my identity to believe this and that and that other thing. But rather, I could set out on a search for the truth, whatever it may be, uh, or as Kay and I have have said together for a few years from this put-together uh, axiom, or not axiom, but a, a slogan of sorts, uh, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, wherever it may lead. That last part we got from Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so the, um, the idea is that we don't mind still needing to learn things. That's okay if we've got this bit wrong or that bit wrong, we can make that correction. We can decouple from our previous belief and go on uh, toward a fuller and fuller understanding. So God created man upright, 
but they've gone off in search of many schemes. Well, I'm going to submit to you that that going off in search of other things other than that for which God created us, I submit that this is foolish behavior and that uh, the Proverbs take issue with this. And uh, I do find that what Solomon says here is consistent with what I read elsewhere in the Scriptures. So this is one of the reasons that I don't think, oh, this is just that crazy man Solomon going off, uh, you know, being the grouchy old man, uh, griping about the behaviors of other people that uh, offend him or irritate him. I don't think that that's what this is. So what I wanted to do is simply to read through these and give some discussion to them. Uh, I did group them together. They, they're they not today in order of appearance in the uh, text, but they are in uh, groups. And I'll tell you what those groups are now. I've categorized them. Uh, some of these proverbs about fools are in the category of no, uh, knowledge and wisdom. Some are about the complacency of fools. There are some about their relationships and how they deal with other people. There are some about their anger. And there are several about their speech. What comes out of their mouth seems to be uh, worth talking about, according to Solomon. And then uh, finally, about their final reward. So um, those are the categories of today. So let's just jump right in. We'll see how this goes. Uh, first of all, talking about the Proverbs about fools that concern knowledge and wisdom. And I'll be reading from three or four different uh, Bible versions today. Some of them that were trickier, I would look into more than one version to see if, um, if I'm really understanding well what the intent was. So for starters, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, and this is from the English Standard Version, ESV. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we see right off about the fool, not only does is he, it doesn't say, well, he's not good with wisdom or he's not apt to uh, take instruction well, no, it goes farther. It says he despises it. And I do think that this typifies a lot of people in our culture uh, who do indeed despise being taught. I just did an interview the other day with the provost of a Christian college who is also a pastor in a church, and he talked about new students showing up and uh, for college and having lots of authority problems, they would tend to reject the um, teaching of their teachers. And now maybe that's with good reason, but what he described, it was in their case a bias. It was a pre-programmed disposition that I accept nothing, and if you want to win me over, well, you're going to have to wrestle with me for that and uh, sort of coax me into it, talk me into it. So uh, this is different from just being objective. They actually will despise uh, the teaching, the instruction, the wisdom of someone else and push back against it as their default setting and not as, well, if it's really bad, I'll push back a lot. But no, I'm just going to push back because I don't want to hear anything from anybody. And uh, it was troubling in the dis in the discussion because it seemed like this was their uh, culture. 
the way that uh, this generation has somehow managed to grow up. And at the time when they should be ready for more independent life, they're actually quite isolated in their beliefs because they despise, they have learned to despise as a rule, the instruction and wisdom from other people. And I do think this happens a lot, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it says. Well, that fear, the word here is not like, you know, OMG, God's going to strike me with lightning any day. It is, hey, he is God, I am not. He's the creator, I am not. Now, God knows what's right, I don't necessarily know what's right. It's, it's this kind of idea, this fear, this respect, this proper homage uh, to God and his authority based on who he is. So uh, if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, here's a question. How much do you know, dear Christian, if you yourself are not pretty focused on the fear of the Lord, uh, if you're not focused on God's grandness and his rightful role as the superior to you, can you be knowledgeable and not be fearful of God at the same time? If fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, how can you have any knowledge? So uh, I don't think I want to sermonize too much about this, but fools despise that. They despise wisdom. They despise instruction. And I think we're going to see that played out. That's why I put this uh, passage first. The second one, from um, also in the ESV, this is Proverbs 1.22. And this is wisdom crying out. Uh, I love this passage, and this is just a one-liner from it. So, uh, how long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Well, you can see again, in those last three words about the fools hating knowledge. In the last verse, it was them despising wisdom and instruction. So this seems to be more of the same. Um, let me note this word simple. Um, how long, oh simple ones, will you love being simple? Uh, unfortunately, the Quaker song says, um, "'Tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free." Well, that kind of simple and this kind of simple are not the same thing. Normally, when you see the word simple in the Bible describing somebody, it is not a good thing. So uh, this is more along the lines of being a fool. So he talks about scoffers delighting in their scoffing. And I think we see that a great deal in our culture today. We actually see it on both uh, sides of the political spectrum we have a very hateful things being said by people uh, against other people. But it happens on both sides. And this is something that is hard for most of us, if we're honest. It is hard to admit. Uh, I, oh boy, I don't want to get uh, deeply into the political thing. But I think that there are some who think that their side is better than the other, and it is more righteous than the other. But my question is, do you scoff too? Are you mockers too? Do you mock the others? Do you deride them? Do you, uh, do you go over the top with sarcasm against them? 
Uh, many of you do or either sit back and laugh at those who do that. I hear uh, radio talkers who constantly um, insult the other side and say things deliberately uh, designed to incite. I remember, just as an example off the top of my head, I remember G. Gordon Liddy probably 10, 12, 15 years ago um, when he was a radio talker and he would promote as a fundraiser for his organization, um, I think what he called the stacked and packed calendar, something like this. And it was pictures of scantily clad women with uh, assault rifles and pistols and things. So uh, the, way, <laughs> the way he would promote this as was uh, buy this calendar so you can really uh, drive the liberals nuts. Well, why would I want to drive the liberals nuts? Wouldn't I rather uh, be able to discuss things freely at the table, openly, human to human, respect to respect, rather than why would I want to incite uh, uh, unease in somebody else's mind deliberately? And again, that's just an example. And yes, I could find examples on both sides of this kind of thing. Uh, so pardon me for using the example from G. Gordon Liddy and not one from Rachel Maddow or someone else. Uh, that's so not my point to get political. But there is a lot of scoffing that goes on. And uh, it is really part of the culture. And when we do that, you know what it does? There's a backfire effect. And it makes people behave their worst in response. It does not make them behave better. They go to the gutter with it. And when we push in ways that are sarcastic like that, or that are meant to insult them and their being, their identity, they normally answer in kind. And we are causing them to stumble further in the very thing that we criticize them about. So uh, I think this is a really good opportunity to stop and give some careful thought to our ways. Again, he says, how long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. Well, did you know? And of course, Solomon was not talking about our own uh, political state in the United States. Uh, this also happens, by the way, in churches. Because I hear uh, this church talking about how We've got such and such doctrine on straight and all the other churches don't. And then they'll go on to have a scoffing, mocking kind of uh, attitude about the others, which is not right. This is not godly. So anyway, when you uh, choose to behave this way toward others, did you not know that this is not good? The fools hate knowledge. When somebody points out to you that this is not good and they point out what damage it does and how others tend to respond poorly in a very um, reflexive kind of way and a knee-jerk response. When somebody points out that you're causing them to stumble, do you hate that? Do you hate knowing the truth of what you're doing? Or are you the sort who is upright and pliable who can say, oh my, look what I've been doing. I need to cut that out. I need to not take that sort of incisive uh, tone, uh, derisive tone with people, but to speak to them um, graciously. Let's go on to Proverbs 14.8. And this is from the NIV. That's the New International Version. Uh, 
The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. Well, this is pretty much what we're just talking about. Are you going to stop and give thought to how you speak and what effect that has on other people? Or are you just going to carry on in some sort of deceptive way of life? The uh, proverb here seems to be setting one thing against another. It talks about the wisdom of the prudent does such and such, but the folly of fools is such and such other. And this is typical of the style of uh, literature that constitutes the Proverbs. So you have a picture of two different people here. The prudent, uh, his thing or her thing is to give careful thought to what they do in life. But the fool would rather just go about cheating, deceiving. And I think this says a great deal about what kind of people we are. Do you like giving thought to your ways? Are you apt to discover errors in your own thinking and go fix them? Or are you just the let it rip kind of person and I don't care? I'll frequently hear people make some sort of argument in the public forum. They'll put forth a logical argument. They'll throw out a couple of facts or supposed facts and then make some uh, logical applications to it and come out with some conclusion. Therefore, you need to do blank. But then someone else who wants to vet this will go look into it and find out that, well, actually, a couple of the facts there was a problem with, and then uh, this is a logical fallacy that was used to reach the conclusion that was preached at us. Well, the person doing the preaching will come back and say, well, it doesn't matter. Still, the point is such and such. You need to do or you need to quit doing blah, blah, blah. Uh, in other words, I built this argument, but even though my argument is uh, feckless, it does not work. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. And so we discover, oh, this wasn't really about logic in the first place, was it? So it was deceitful. I'm going to put forth an argument and act like I'm the guy who knows the stuff and I can make make the uh, the reasoning sound and all this, but then really I'm shown to be a fraud because I did not know what I was talking about. Well, I don't care. You need to listen to me anyway. And this is what comes to my mind when I think about the deceitfulness of fools, that the folly of fools is deception. It is a show because they don't really have anything to say. And, uh, well, based on knowledge. Uh, and <laughs> this brings up this... <laughs> very uh, important point that we can be foolish in one thing and wise in another. The way we're built, the way God designed us, we are compartmentalized. It's not that, well, if you get one thing wrong, you've got everything wrong. That is so not true. You can drive 10 miles to work and get in zero accidents. Then you can get in a logical argument at lunch and make five accidents, five mistakes in your reasoning. You can be very good at the one thing, very poor at the other. You can argue very well about football and how the targeting rule is inconsistently called, and you can argue very poorly about how the unsportsmanlike conduct rules are inconsistently uh, enforced. It, uh, there is no guarantee because you can do one thing well that you will do everything well, or because you mess up one thing, you'll mess up everything. So we are compartmentalized, and the question for us always is, ah, well, 
even if I am the sort to generally give good thought to my ways, can I sometimes be foolish? Well, I don't need to answer that for you if you are indeed the sort who gives good thought to your ways because you will know that you catch yourself in error from time to time. Uh, I make errors pretty much every day, and hopefully not many of them are very serious errors, but I get all kinds of things wrong. I will catch myself even with snide uh, thoughts in my mind that I need to, no, 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 that's not the right way to think. I have to go back and fix. Sometimes it comes out of my mouth, uh, all kinds of simple uh, logistical errors happen all day. Oh, no, I, I, I'm sorry, I forgot to get this such and such at the store. Or, oh, um, I wasn't thinking right. We needed three jugs of milk and not just one. Or, you know, These kind of errors are constant, and everyone should uh, know this about ourselves. Uh, but the prudent is the one, the prudent people are the ones who are going to be understanding this about ourselves, where the fool may have no interest in understanding self in that way. Uh, let's go on Proverbs 8, verse 5. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. I love this one because uh, this raises the question, oh, are people able to change? Well, if they're not able to change, then why in the world would the proverbist here uh, even tell the simple to gain prudence? Why tell the fool to set his heart on prudence? Is, is he just torturing them? Is, is he mocking them? Telling them to do what's impossible? I don't think so. Uh, I note that the footnote in the New International Version says, that the Hebrew here for set your hearts on it literally means instruct your minds. Well, that's very interesting because if we go back a few passages, we see that the fool despises instruction. This is back in uh, Proverbs 1 verse 7. So here the fool is instructed to instruct his own mind. Well, <laughs> if he's a fool and he despises instruction... Well, that's very interesting, Solomon. Why are you telling him to instruct himself? And yet, this is the very point of decision, is it not? How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? And let me remind you, this is not good. And so you who are simple, you need to gain prudence. You need to cut it out, change your habits, change your inner thought management, your inner quality control, your executive function, if you're a psychologist in, in the lingo of their field, you need to get on it inside of your mind and do some better work. You need to teach yourself, instruct your mind on prudence, how to be uh, wise and prudent. We should look at those differences. Uh, Proverbs 10, 21, the lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of sense. Well, I would love to pick Solomon's brain to know what all examples he had in mind when he wrote this generalization. The lips of the righteous nourish many. If you think about, have you ever been in a meeting where there was a lot of uh, dissension and then somebody stands up with a comment that seems particularly well-focused and apt and uh, seems to understand what time it is? You notice what effect this has on the room. 
Now, there may still be some division, but it tends to uh, soothe a lot of people, to calm them, to put things in order, to even if they have to decouple from some of their previous beliefs, they still uh, get a new understanding from what the righteous person said. And it is nourishing to many. And I have no idea if Solomon had that sort of thing in mind, but I can certainly see uh, this in my own life and my own experience. Fools die for lack of sense? Hmm. Well, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about didn't take care of himself? He Like, uh, you know, smoking and drinking and hard living kind of thing and died early? Well, that's certainly no a new scenario to us. We see this constantly. Or when he talks about dying, does he have in mind literal dying? Like, uh, fool, you were uh, you were put to death on purpose because you got into crime. I'm not sure what he might have meant, but obviously it's very serious, and it's a lack of sense. So here he's putting a, a contrast between what it's like to be around the fool and what it's like to be around the righteous person. In fact, I could have included this in the section later on relationships. So the lips of the righteous do nourish many. And again, you know, this is under this category of knowledge and wisdom. So the fool, of course, is not the type to nourish many people. And you might think about this for yourself. Uh, Of course, as I was saying earlier, it's easier to see the errors and faults in other people than it is to see them in ourselves sometimes. And you may well know foolish people who, after you spend time with them, you don't you don't feel nourished at all. You don't feel uplifted. You don't feel like you're a better person as a result of their company. Well, what about you? Are, are you the sort to leave people better than you found them? Something good to think about. All right, moving on, we're going to Proverbs 12, verse 23. And this also is from the NIV. The prudent keep their knowledge to themselves, but a fool's heart blurts out folly. Well, this is very interesting, and of course, I think there's some potential here to abuse this one. Uh, but he's, again, setting two things against one another. One is the prudent person or the prudent people. They keep their knowledge to themselves, he says. Well, this is interesting because uh, in the last one we just read, the lips of the righteous nourish many. So are they, which is it? Are they nourishing many or are they keeping their knowledge to themselves? Well, this is where we need to be uh, careful and reasonable and responsible about how we interpret things. It's easy for us Americans, and I don't know about other cultures, so I'll just talk about the one I know about. It's easy for us to get all uh, snooty and say, well, it says the prudent keep the knowledge to themselves, and so therefore they don't say stuff. Well, wait a minute. Uh, How then can they ever nourish many? if they know better, but never say so. Something's wrong with that. A few months ago, I had somebody in some internet discussion of some topic or other. She says to me, oh, well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm biting my tongue. You know, I like a lot of what you said, but I'm biting my tongue a lot too. And I said, well, please don't bite your tongue. Uh, tell me what you think. If I'm wrong about something, I want to get it right. And of course, if she's wrong about me being wrong about something, that's a chance for her to get it right because I can spell it out for her better, hopefully to convince her. 
So either way, uh, please don't bite your tongue. Well, the response was nothing. And I've learned to see this as quite a red flag when people bite their tongues and they say nothing about what they think is wrong with whatever they're hearing or seeing from somebody, some uh, assertion that gets made. And so here it says the prudent keep their knowledge to themselves. Well, I don't think we can take that as uh, a bottom line, uncategorical assertion that righteous people never speak. I think we have to understand it as a contrast, like so many of these other Proverbs, where he's contrasting a prudent person with a fool. Now, so let's look at the fool part of this. It says, a fool's heart blurts out folly. Well, I, haven't we all seen this? You can look in a political forum, you can look in a religious forum, and find people just blah, 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 and they're just saying, typing, click, 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 typing, and uh, what's coming out of their mouths is not uh, rational. It does not jibe well with the real world. It does not map accurately onto reality. And you can find this out because you can go vet it. You can go check what they say and see if it's true. Uh, but the fool's heart blurts out stuff like this. They just say it. They haven't done their own internal vetting. They haven't done their own reality check here to see if it's true or not. And this is typical of what comes out of the fool. Blah, 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 blah. On and on it goes. This is how they manage their minds. If it comes up, it comes out. Um, they don't care about uh, whether it's right or not, whether it's wise or not, whether it is verifiable or not. Nope, they just want to say it. And this is an undeveloped person. This is somebody who is not mature. They have not been uh, matured in the image of God. That's what's wrong with it. This is base human behavior, not mature. And so if you start from there and go back to the first part of this proverb, the prudent keep their knowledge to themselves, but a fool blurts out folly, or a fool's heart blurts out folly. Uh, okay, now we get a little bit different picture. The fool's going to say whatever. Well, the prudent person is not going to say just whatever. He's going to give careful thought to his ways, and he's going to say what is true and reasonable. And so he will keep some things to himself. He'll, in, in fact, his own internal deliberation about what to say, he may well keep to himself. So there's some things going on in his head, whereas in the fool's head, no, there's, there's no quality control going on here at all. The thought comes up in the mind, bam, it's out the mouth. That's how it works. And I think the point here is this is not how God designed people to be. In fact, the very God who says, give careful thought to your ways and come let us reason together, I doubt very much that God himself uh, speaks uh, in this way. And this is difficult for me, a mere human, to get a grasp on this because the question is, well, what's it like to be God? Well, how could I possibly know this except that I know that he's righteous? So, uh, and God does deliberate in his own mind. We know this, um, for example, when he came to regret having created mankind. Uh, that's just one example. Oh, here's some change of mind. And uh, so 
I don't mean to get off in that rabbit trail. That's a very fascinating world, and I look forward to learning more in person when uh, God can explain it to me himself if he ever would choose to do that. So anyway, uh, we go back to the prudent keep their knowledge to themselves, but a fool's heart blurts out. And I think that's the the center of the aim of uh, what Solomon has in mind when he writes this. Going on to Proverbs 14, verse 7, and this also is in the NIV, Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Interesting how he puts it. He could just say fools don't know what they're talking about. But he says leave the presence because you don't find knowledge there. Well, that's interesting. Does he mean to suggest that as a general rule, it's not worth your time to be in places where you can't find knowledge? Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Maybe that's the kind of guy Solomon was, or at least at this time in his life. And again, I am uh, uncertain what to make about the final disposition of Solomon and all that, but that's a topic for another day, perhaps. Let me say this now, uh, just for fun. And hey, this is what you get when I'm off the script. (laughs) I'm going to talk about uh, Socrates. Uh, There is a quote, and if any of you are Latin experts, I would love to have your help on this. Hey, this is Jack breaking in here at this point because of something silly I just said uh, in this point where I'm joking about uh, being off the script. Well, uh, twice in what I'm about to say here about Socrates, I say Latin as if Socrates uh, spoke in Latin and was recorded in Latin. He was not. He was uh, recorded in Attic Greek. So where here I am calling for an expert in Attic uh, or in Latin, rather, I should have said, I should have checked uh, to say uh, Attic Greek. And uh, for the record, had I been writing this down, that's the kind of vetting that I almost always do. And so I got suckered by my own excitement here and did not check it. And uh, so there you go, lesson learned. Uh, His very famous quotation, and I think this comes down uh, through Plato because Socrates' works were not written um, He was not a writer, he was a speaker. But the quotation attributed to him goes something like this. uh, The unexamined life is not worth living. Well, I have run across uh, the idea someplace that this is not the best interpretation, that it should say the unexamining life is not worth living. And so if anybody knows Latin well enough, please write me and let me know whether that can be vetted, because I would like to know. Funny, in one forum I was discussing this, and somebody said, oh, it doesn't make any difference. It's the same thing. It means the same thing. No, it does not mean the same thing. The unexamined life is the life that hasn't been examined, and this is uh, ambiguous. Do you mean by the person living the life himself or by others? So the unexamined life, well, unexamined by whom is the question that that raises. Whatever that is, that's not worth living. Okay. But this other thing, if the source I read was right about this, the unexamining life, ah, that's different. This is the person who goes around and doesn't examine things. They don't, they're not looking at life to understand. They don't care about wisdom. They don't care about knowledge. 
They're not thinking about ideas and testing things. And so I think it's very interesting if that's what Socrates was talking about, that to say, you might as well shoot me as to make me be like that because I'm not interested in that. That's not worth living. So there you go. There's my question. If anybody can help with that, please do write in. Uh, so back to Proverbs 14, uh, and we'll see how in the world I got here from there. Uh, leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. I'm curious uh, on your behalf, whoever you may be, uh, what is your circle of friends like? Are they knowledgeable people? Are they people who are generally uh, characterized by uh, lifelong learning? Are they the sort to be working the puzzle as they go? Do they have the scriptures on their minds? Are they discussing it? You know that passage over there? I've never really understood that. Yeah, me neither. I, you know, what, what's that mean? Well, and do they look into things like this? Or are they incurious? I am constantly disappointed in the world that it is so hard to find discussion with people who are actually working the puzzle. It seems anathema to so much of the church culture that I've seen in my travels. It seems like that's not what church is about. We don't come here to talk about the deep things and to discuss and learn and wrestle with things and to improve our understanding and to correct our own errors. No, it's about something else, you know, whatever it may be. And then that's, there's probably a different flavor to different congregations everywhere. A lot of it's, oh, I want to feel good. I want to feel accepted. I want to uh, calm my worries, my fears, my anxieties. You know, there could be all kinds of different motives as to what flavor goes in some certain fellowship. But do you meet words of knowledge there? Uh, now, there, there may be some who purport to uh, dispense words of knowledge, but if you go vet them, then you find out, oh, wait a minute, oh, they're wrong about this, and they were wrong about that other thing, and they were right about this part of the third thing, but not the other part of the third thing. You may find that it's rather sloppy, and so while it purports to be about knowledge, it may not actually be doing a very good job of that. So, it says, leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not meet words of knowledge. Well, this makes me think about lots of things, but uh, it makes me think about several New Testament passages about the quality control for the fellowship that they kept. And, you know, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, you were to shun them in some way. I forget the exact words. Or... Um, this idea that you'll know who's really from God and who's not based on what they teach and how they come about. So this is something that's definitely worth thinking through in my mind. What's the fellowship you keep? Do you need to upgrade and find a fellowship that is more uh, interested in knowledge? Uh, if, if you're the average American believer, I bet you do because it's easy for the churches to get off track and become about something other than uh, promoting knowledge of God's Word. So there's something for you to think about. 
Okay, let's go on. Uh, I have two versions of this next one. Both uh, The first one is the uh, English Standard Version and then the NIV. And this is Proverbs 14, verse 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. So as we're thinking about the profile of a fool, the idea of being reckless and careless, as opposed to, again, we have this opposition, uh, opposed to the wise person who is cautious and turns away from evil, well, the fool does not. I think that's what he's getting at here. The NIV puts it this way, the wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot-headed and feels secure. Well, that's interesting. That that word careless in the first version is being uh, interpreted now as feeling secure. And it raises the question, well, what do you care about? Or about th- what things do you care? How deeply do you care about them? How carefully do you care about them? And of course, carefulness is part of care, right? So think about this. Uh, people even think about your own church um, uh, culture, or the, you know, the subculture that's in your church congregation or the people that you uh, spend most of your time with, are they careful or are they careless? Are they reckless people? Let's see, what's the opposite of, are they rec, rec, recful <laughs> or are they reckless? I'm not sure that really works, but hey, again, I'm off the script. I am unsupervised. So, I think there's a lot in our culture that is very careless and very reckless. It's certainly in politics. Oh, boy, the way that people use the Constitution in both parties to cheat. Uh, They really like the Constitution today because it makes a point they like. But tomorrow, well, we're not going to talk about the Constitution because that's an old archaic document and it's outdated. And, you know, I don't like what it says about this other topic. Right. So. I think as I listen to public argumentation, uh, it is mostly a mess. Very often you'll hear a debate where both sides are messed up, where they are uh, not only morally messed up, dishonest and, you know, uh, irresponsible, but also where they're irrational. They have not checked their facts. They have not uh, made sure that their argument matches reality. And they just really don't care. And I think this is very, very common. This obviously happens in the pulpit. Man, I could go on and on and on about the kinds of common errors that are out there uh, in common use of frequently repeated week after week after week. Anybody, any fifth grader with the Bible could look into it and find out that some of these, and I I am so not saying that everything here in churches is erroneous. No, 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 not going there. But some things are so simple. And let me give you, for instance, and I, I may have uh, done this in a previous episode early on, but this is such a good one. Uh, so you get to the time in your church service when you have the Lord's Supper. And then in one particular tradition I, I uh, experienced early on in life, and then someone gets up and maybe it's the same person, I don't know, but they get up and say, well, separate and apart from the Lord's Supper, you know, now we're going to uh, have our and whatever they call it, offering, contribution, tithe, you know, it depends on the group perhaps. But uh, invariably, somebody will get up and read from 1 Corinthians 16, I think it's verse 2 and 3 or something like this, 
but it's the very beginning of the chapter. And uh, they'll read about, uh, you know, as the Lord commanded uh, us every Sunday to give uh, to the church. Well, you go read that passage. You'll see this is not people making tax-deductible donations into the uh, the nonprofit corporation uh, with a 501c3 tax-exempt status from the <laughs> from the IRS. This is not so not what they were talking about. In fact, uh, here's one clue if you want to go sleuth this out yourself with a Bible concordance. Like you could, you could go to blueletterbible.com or .org, I'm sorry, whichever it is. But you could go there and find out uh, the actual words used. For instance, when it says that each one should, um, if you go to the archaic language like the American Standard Bible, each one should lay by in store uh, the, his his money, saving it up until Paul came for a contribution. Well, I doubt very much Paul is coming to your congregation to get this money that you gave last Sunday. But the other thing is you gave the money last Sunday. Well, the instruction was each one should lay by his own side the money on the first day of the week. So apparently it was some sort of thing. Okay, fine. The first day is sort of a special day in our Christian culture. And on that day, each one should lay aside what he's willing in his heart uh, to lay aside. Funny, no mention of the one-tenth, the tithe business. And there was no, it was not handed in to put in the plate on Sunday morning either. So that was not what you do at church on Sundays. That was not it. That was something different. It was a special thing. Uh, and this is one of the biggest kept secrets in all of Christianity. Oh, 1 Corinthians 16, you know, 1 through 3 is not about our Sunday contribution to the local uh, nonprofit corporation, right? So, and, and I don't mean to be um, sarcastic with this. Uh, obviously, if you're going to get a group of friends together and buy a building and all this, you have to pay the bills and you have to take up money. But so here's what I'm saying, and please be very careful to understand me. You can't prove that from this. If you want this passage, 1 Corinthians 16, you want to talk about that when you take up your money? Uh-uh, you're cheating, unless you're taking up money for a famine in the Holy Land, and an apostle is going to come by and get that money in a little while. If that's what's going on in your congregation, then you're welcome to use that passage. Except that Paul did not write that to your congregation either, did he? <laughs> so, again, I'm all about let's be honest, rational, and responsible with how we interpret the Bible. And so I just throw that out as an example of being reckless and careless. Uh, and again, I'm talking about uh, Proverbs 14, 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. And somebody will say, oh, Jack, so you're saying it's evil for us to use uh, 1 Corinthians 16 for the contribution each week? No. But it's reckless and careless, is it not? Indeed it is. And it's funny, you know, I've seen places where this has been corrected and still the very next week they're up there still doing it again. So this is one of those examples, what we read earlier about the fool being deceitful. That, dude, you've been corrected on this. Why are you still doing this? What's wrong with you? 
God made you upright. Why are you seeking out these other schemes? What's wrong with just using the scriptures to say what they originally said? Why do you have to twist one to appropriate it for your own use? Why do you have to commandeer them? You know, like in the movies when the when the cop uh, is on a chase and he has to commandeer somebody's car. Get out. I need your car. Right. And they point the gun at him and the person gets out and then they drive off. Uh, why do you have to do that with the scriptures? This passage is not about that. Cut it out. Quit using the thing to do something else than what the original use of it was. That's cheating. Okay, is this me sermonizing? Am I going off here? Am I getting wild and radical? Am I, uh, as my father-in-law used to say uh, about uh, preachers in the pulpit, a rarin and a snorting? And I know I just said that in a couple of episodes ago. Okay, so uh, the NIV puts it this way, that the wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot-headed and feels secure. Well, the the difference between being hot-headed and being wise and shunning evil or feeling secure without shunning evil, uh, really, you know, if you want to ask the question, well, is abusing the Bible evil? Hmm. Well, why don't you prove to me that it's not? Prove to me that it's good. Prove to me that God approves of it. Prove to me that God would be proud of your reckless use of the Scripture in the church service. Service, that's an interesting word. (laughs) Why does it get called a, a, a worship service or a funeral service? Hmm, that's not in the Bible, is it, right? So there's something to think about. Uh, Who knows? Maybe that's kind of reckless and careless too. uh, Some of the terminology that gets used. All right. So these, um, these, oh, I don't know. These are about eight or nine here. These are all in the knowledge and wisdom category. And this is just me categorizing these things. Let's talk about the fool being complacent. Going on to Proverbs 13, 19. And this is the NIV. A longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul but fools detest turning from evil. Now, this one's tough. Linguistically, this one's tough. Uh, uh, As literature, this is tough. What do these two things have to do with one another? We we get it, uh, Mr. Proverb, that you uh, often set one thing against another for comparison and contrast. Okay, I get that. So here we have a longing fulfilled is sweet to the soul. Okay, sure. I finally got married after wanting to get married, and boy, that's really sweet. Okay. But fools detest turning from evil. Huh. What's the connection? Well, this one's kind of tricky. I looked it up in the ESV where it says, A desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. All right, that's quite the same. But to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. So here you have something that's sweet to the soul versus something that's an abomination to somebody else. So maybe this we're sort of getting, uh, getting toward the, the bullseye here. The Young's literal translation says, a desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. Okay. And an abomination to fools is turn away from evil. This is not really a complete sentence, so 
uh, and an abomination to fools is, you know, this, we might say, uh, colon, turn from evil. So again, there seems to be, hey, this kind of person gets uh, delights in this one thing, but this other kind of person delights in something else. Or, and <laughs> that would be a normal, uh, a, a an uncomplicated comparison contrast. But this one is flipped. It's like a double, it's compounded. Because what he's really saying is, hey, this certain kind of people finds this very sweet. This other certain kind of people, uh, it doesn't say find something else sweet, but finds something else not sweet, detestable, abominable. So it's a little of a compounded thing, and that's why it's hard to get our heads around it right away. I went on to the New American Standard Bible, and it says, desire realized is sweet to the soul. Okay, that's quite like the others. But it is an abomination to fools to turn away from evil. And so I think we see what all he's saying. The question, well, why are you saying it this way? What are we supposed to get out of this exactly? And, uh, hey, you know, the, the culture in which Solomon grew up and in which he wrote, the culture that inspired, um, you know, the, the, what were the scriptures he read? And how old were they and how ancient and what was what was thinking like in that culture? It can be different. This is not the way we would say this, but it's the way they said it. And this is a highly evolved art form, the way that they said it. So we have to realize we're, we're peeking into somebody else's culture here. So he wants to say that, okay, when you long for something and it's finally fulfilled, this is a sweet experience. But look at the fool. The idea of turning away from evil, that does not fulfill him. This is not sweet. The fool takes no delight in that. Well, righteous people should take delight in that. I recently had a tooth extracted, and I was so glad to get rid of that evil in my mouth, even though it took a week for the pain to stop afterwards. But I was so glad to be done with it. And you think about other things. Oh, I finally cleaned my desk. Or at my school, we finally got a, a tool cart to handle all the uh, PA gear, the, the microphones and cables and such. They were strewn everywhere. And finally, we got it straightened out. And I went for a week thinking, oh, it's so great to be neat and organized. Right? This was a delight to me. It was a desire fulfilled. I'd been thinking for months about you know, having this monkey on my back. It's so messy. It's so messy. Finally, we got it straightened out, and it is a sweet thing. Well, so should be turning from evil, because God made man upright. And when we find that we have gone after other schemes, you need to cut that out. Again, we call that repentance. It's changing one's mind. And so that should be sweet. But the fool doesn't find that to be sweet. Hence the name fool. This is how it works. This is, this is God taking its exception to bad behavior from humans he created to be in his own image and likeness. So we're going to stop there for uh, this episode, and we will finish this in the next episode, number 14, 
Uh, again, I was left unattended and I went on for about two hours. So actually we're splitting this in half and you will hear the rest of it uh, very soon, as soon as I can get it posted. So um, that's it for this one. Uh, thanks for joining in.